You're listening to a podcast from www.aussiewriters.com.au where we celebrate talented Australian writers and their books. Uh, welcome back, everybody. Uh, wonderful to see you all again. Oh, how we've grown. Uh, we're here for the third and final instalment of this, our fifth Little Fictions. Uh, lucky number five. Uh, next month, we are going to be having a special two uh, instalments. We'll be having our regular reading uh, to be held right here at Knox Street Bar uh, on... May the 11th. Uh, but then on May the 18th, we do have our uh, debut at the Sydney Writers Festival, for which we are uh, incredibly excited. We would love to have you there. Well, I mean, no doubt we're going to be spruiking it on Facebook and, uh, and hot air balloons and all manner of things. So please uh, share the word. We would love to get as many people there as we could. Uh, but coming up next, we have Eleni is going to be returning to the stage, reading an extract from What I Didn't Say in My Speech by Claire Amann, uh, who I gather has come all the way from Grafton, uh, which is quite a, a jaunt. I know Grafton a little bit. I know it's Crooked Bridge. I know Ramorny. Uh, so, yes, it's good to see people coming from such a disparate place. We have people who have come up from Canberra. Uh, we have international guests. It's all happening. Uh, Claire's story. What I didn't say in my speech... Uh, a quick extract. At her cousin's wedding, uh, his cousin remembers his accident and the mystery she worked to return him to the living. So a bit of a Lazarus story there. Potentially zombies? I don't know. I'm, I'm just kind of spitballing here a little. Uh, Claire grew up in Melbourne, now lives in Grafton, works as a town planner and writes. Uh, so please, ladies and gentlemen, big round of applause for both Claire and for Eleni. After my speech at Davy's wedding, I head for the drinks table in a way that could only be described as agricultural. <laughs> Davy's backyard is steep. I've got my elbows out and my legs are like cranks. Heavy duty, that's me these days. I think everyone liked the speech. They're smiling and clapping anyway. Davy and his bride are perfect on the veranda, like on a wedding cake. Nothing could be finer. Up at the drinks table, let's help yourself. I pull a beer out of the bathtub ice. Davy's old friend Leo Attico takes the bottle from my fingers, twists off the top and hands it back to me. I haven't seen him for years. Davy and Leo used to share a house in the early 80s when Davy first moved here to Sydney. There's a woman next to him. She's fluttering a Chinese fan in tight little movements. He introduces me. This is Davy's cousin Judith, he tells her. Stunning speech, Judith, she says to me, and her lips form a red smile. She tells me she didn't know Davy used to be reckless. I never knew he had that terrible fall, she says. I suck on the bottle and the beer comes fizzing out in a rush all over my dress. Steady, says Leo. He takes a handful of purple serviettes from the table and dabs at me. Life's reckless, I say. But the woman with the Chinese fan has forgotten me. She's turned to face the veranda. Now the bride's father is talking. It's starting to get dark and he's holding his speech up close to his face. He talks on and on about his daughter. I decide to share a secret with Leo Attico. I saved his life, I whisper, looking straight ahead. Who, says Leo. 
well, me and Jim Morrison, I say. But Leo has pushed his hands into the bathtub and is fishing around for bottles. He opens a dark ale and puts his cold fingertips on my neck. I'm in a sweat from toiling up the garden, so I wipe some ice over my cheeks. This dress is too tight around my armpits. There's a can of bourbon and coke winking at me from the bathtub, and I can't resist it. What the hell, my duties are done. I thought Leo would have made the speech. He and Davy go back a long way. I used to catch the train down to Sydney and stay at their place. They rented an old house in Ashfield. It was all sofas and bongs and flagons and the stereo full blast. Or we'd get stoned and drive to Stanwell Park in Davy's Tirana and listen to Pink Floyd or The Doors while we waited for the sun to come up. We liked our music. I knew how to belt out a song when I was young and Leo thought he could play guitar. Leo used to be a sweetheart. You could trust him. One night I got into his bed. He'd gone out with a girl and Davy thought he wouldn't come home. I pretended to be asleep when he came in. I remember how he lay down with his head at the other end of the bed, top to tail like children. Now I ask him if he remembers Davy's Tirana. He remembers. Apache Red, Globe Mags, Triple Side Draft, Stromberg Carbies, Extractors and a two-inch exhaust. God, that thing was a hottie. Davy used to tell everyone Tirana was Aboriginal for flying. I'm the only person I know who learned to drive a V8 in a, Holden, in, in a V8 Holden Piranha, I say. Leo's still got that cackling laugh. We were off our heads back then, he says. Lucky no one got killed. Yeah, I say, lucky. Back then, Leo had been saving up to go to Europe. He was in Paris when Davy fell. By the time he came back three years later, everything had been put right. The lipstick ones wandered off. I ask him who she was. From Davy's work, he says, nice, I say. He says, yeah, nah, sort of. And he scans the crowd. I hope it works out for Davy this time, I say. This is Davy's third wedding. He and Christine have stepped off the veranda and into a sea of wedding guests. I only arrived last night. Davy paid for my ticket. I practiced my speech to myself on the plane, looking out of the window. Down below was tufty with puckers and folds, gold, chocolate and watermelon green with twisty rivers. But as we neared Sydney, it all disappeared and there was only cloud. We went bumping through the big white nothing towards the ground and I thought the plane would shake itself apart and I would die by falling. Later in the cab, I remembered that when a person falls, they can appear from above like a leaf dropping. I've pictured it thousands of times. On a humid Sunday in 1983, <coughs> I watched Davy fall backwards off a rock face in Sherwood National Park. He lay slow in the air with his arms and legs spread out, looking up at the sky. He did a sort of double take when he landed, like a bounce. Then he lay frozen in the same position, arms and legs out, face up. Don't move, I yelled. I didn't mean for Davy not to move. The truth is I was yelling at the universe to stop. Like that poem at school about pulling the sun in. Turn out the stars, take everything down. Davy's gone. Hope he gets it together this time, I say to Leo, and we clink our drinks together. Men fall. They think they're invincible. They get this mad gleam, and next thing they're balancing on the very edge of a cliff, pissing themselves laughing. Then we have to look after them when they land on their heads. But even though I'm a female, I know what that crazy light feels like. 
I had it after Davy fell. The difference is I used it to save his life. This is what Leo Atticote doesn't know. Davy wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for me. Davy and Christina dancing. It's meant to be romantic, but the ground is so steep and he's pumping her arm up and down and they're laughing. It's been a long afternoon and I've eaten too many smoked oysters. Times like this I feel like a cigarette, but I can't see any smokers. I tip the last of my bourbon down my throat. Leo sits with his knees together and his feet apart, toes turned in. He leans forward and studies me. You and Davy are getting more alike, he says, except for your eyes. It's hard to know in a small family like ours. Davy's eyes are dark and abrupt. I don't know where he got them. I wonder if I can trust Leo not to laugh at me. I test him out. Did Davy ever tell you we had three great uncles in Scotland who got killed on their way home from a wedding? I've seen a photo taken at the wedding, doomed and bright. They raise their glasses and grin. No, says Leo. They drove off a bridge, I say, when we were kids. They drowned before I ever got to meet them, those old men with their plaid waistcoats and shining bald heads. I tell them about my family's pig theory. My grandmother said it was bad luck if you see a pig on your way to a wedding. They must have seen a pig. Lucky you came by plane, Jude, he says. I never talk about it, but I changed after Davy fell. Ever since he fell, I've been kind of in mid-air myself. Relationships blow up, jobs fall through, nothing holds. I maintain my direction. It was weird when Davy fell. I sprinted all the way through the bush to the car park. I never knew I could run so fast. I thought Davy was dead. I had to show the rescue team where he was. The ambulance took him to the hospital, but the doctors took one look and flew him to Sydney. Horrific, says Leo. He looks into my eyes. I tell him I still hate the sound of bellbirds. He hands me another bourbon. I drove Davies Tirana down to Sydney, I say. I couldn't leave it up at Sherwood. He would have murdered me. I got his car keys out of his backpack. Everything went out of balance. I lost my job, but I didn't care. I just wanted him to wake up. I went to the hospital every night. My uncle and aunt spent every day there with him, and I did the night shift. All the nurses knew me. I sat at the window. I didn't want him to think I was staring at him while he was in bed. All his tubes. Yeah, and I was worried about tripping over some piece of medical shit and the whole thing going defunct. I didn't put this in my speech, but um, I'm the reason Davy survived. Me and Jim Morrison. Every night while he was in the coma, I drove his Tirana really fast to his favourite song. Davy was on the seventh floor of the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital in room five. The song Roadhouse Blues goes for four minutes and four seconds. The fastest I drove Davy's Tirana was 180 kilometres an hour. Someone had to do it. <laughs> I got this idea that if I went fast enough, Davy would wake up. Every night when I left the hospital, I'd get on the expressway in that red car of his. Do you remember how Roadhouse Blues starts? Thunker, 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 diggity, thunker, 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 diggity. Then Morrison gives a shout. I'd get a bit of speed up, then I'd peg back a couple of gears and plant my foot. Keep your eyes on the road, your hands upon the wheel. That thing was a rocket. If this, then that. One night, I did 150. Next day, his toe twitched. I raced for him. He moved a finger. I kept it up faster every night. One time I switched the headlights off. 
talk about sick joy. The next day, Davy had a little smile. I did it every night until he woke up. The night he opened his eyes, I stopped fanging his car. Gravity, velocity, stability. Look at him now, I say. Jim Morrison's been dead for 42 years. You work it out, Leo. The first star has come out. Everyone is dancing now with Davy and Christine in the middle. Leo Adicote puts his arms around me. Don't ever say anything to Davy, I tell him. Leo shakes his head. Love you, Judy Blue Eyes, he says. I smile up at him, and in a way that I, at any rate, would describe as poetry in motion, we dance. reading. A wonderful story. Great sense of place. Also nice to see Tiranas making their way back. <laughs> first car I ever learned to drive on was a Tirana. And it would have been the first or second, one of, you know, even on my maiden voyage learning to drive. I was driving on the outskirts of Bega and took a corner and both the left passenger and left rear passenger doors fell off. That was my introduction to automotives. Uh, Coming up next, we have Tim McGarry is going to be coming back with us uh, to read Lights by Susan McCreary. Uh, another from Flashing the Square. It's been a popular book tonight. Uh, Susan's story has been published and shortlisted, and she's won first prize as a very accomplished writer. Uh, won the Carmel Bird Short Fiction Award in 2011. Uh, and our little description of this story is in the car on their way to shop at IKEA. The past never is far from the surface of their lives. The kind of profundity that always tends to arise when you go to Ikea. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, a round of applause for Tim. Another red light. He palms his chin, taps the steering wheel. Sport plus shopping traffic. Next to him, his wife is silent. What a way to spend Saturday morning, stuck in the car with her in a mood. <laughs> His head hurts from last night, that's why she's pissed off. Green, only two cars make it through. The hulking yellow and blue sign taunts in the distance. Bloody Ikea. He can't stand the place. Full of pregnant women nesting. Her mother coming from the UK, and they have to set up Home Beautiful. Bed, lamp, side table, even a rug. What's the point in visiting now? She hasn't said a word since they left home. Neither will he. Play that game. Good at it. Coloured streamers on cars. Must be junior grand final. I'd rather be cheering on the sidelines instead of shopping. Makes a fist. Small as this he was. Small enough to fit into his hand. Their boy. Won't think about it, no one's fault. Don't think about it. 
green, slams on the accelerator. This time he'll make it through. Thanks. Another poignant story. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have but one uh, final reading for tonight. But I do thank you very much for coming along and supporting uh, these nights. I know that there's several uh, repeat offenders who are back again with us tonight, and it's great to see uh, a loyal audience developing. But we do uh, very much encourage you to please, if you like uh, what you've been hearing, to spread the word. If you don't like it, just, you know, kind of colour it up a little and then tell your friends about it. Uh, and we do hope to see you here again next month. Uh, the dates are May the 11th, we'll be right here at Knox Street Bar. May the 18th, we'll have our debut at the Sydney Writers' Festival. You'll laugh, you'll cry, it'll change your life. Uh, we also happen to have uh, associated with us the um, A Man Made Entirely of Bats, a publication from Patrick Lenton, which is going to be uh, held over at the Bondi Pavilion as part of the Writers' Festival, so we're very excited to uh, pump that up for him. He can't be here tonight because he's moving house uh, and his dogs are very ferocious. Um, but that night is free, but you are encouraged to book ahead. Uh, and also there's so many wonderful things that are happening at the Writers' Festival this year. Uh, make sure you check it out. David Mitchell, Cloud Atlas David Mitchell, that's going to be a, a keeper. Uh, but... Without any further ado, thank you so much for coming along tonight. It's been wonderful to see you all. Uh, well, in part. Uh, but now we're going to have Alex William will be reading from a man made entirely about Ross Gellerman by Patrick Lenton. Alex Williams, ladies and gentlemen. David Schwimmer wasn't having a good time of late as evidenced by his failed marriage and stagnant career. The star of Friends had made enough money per episode to keep African countries out of debt, so it wasn't like he was struggling financially, but he felt like maybe his pride was suffering. It's not really like any of his fellow co-stars had gone on to great things. Jennifer Aniston kept plugging away at bad rom-coms, bless her heart, and Lisa Kudrow was sometimes given the indie nod of approval. The drunk who'd played Chandler, whatever his name was, had kept himself busy writing articles about his time on drugs, which, you know, kept him topical. And the last time he'd seen Joey, the actor was standing out the front of a cupcake shop begging for cakes by continuing to say, Come on, it's Joey, it's Joey! How you doing? <laughs> David had just got back from filming a toothpaste ad, and even being in front of the camera for a little while made him wonder if he would throw his hat in the ring again. Was the, he old enough to start playing handsome older dad characters, yes? Yet? Yes. But he still looked exactly the same. When he gazed in the mirror, it was Ross Geller staring back at him. He felt like even messed up child stars had a better deal with them. At least they could get fat. <laughs> Strolling along the icy streets of New York, bundled in layers of expensive scarves and a Tibetan yak wool jacket, David Schwimmer started to understand what the magazines had been talking about in 1998 when they referred to Schwimmer fatigue. <laughs> he was so sick of himself, himself in the morning, looking flustered, himself smiling intimately into the camera at family functions, himself caught mid-action in nostalgia articles on BuzzFeed. He fantasized about disappearing in Argentina like a Nazi war criminal. He laughed bitterly. 
releasing a plume of steam into the Norton, into the night air. He was probably more recognisable in Argentina than he was here, because of the endless reruns of Friends they played. No, for better or worse, he was trapped. Rounding the corner to his street, he paused outside the large heritage building that he was controversially renovating. He felt a lot like the house, doomed to be forever unchanging, forbidden by law to add a funky roof pool to his house, to his soul. Last week, graffiti artists protesting renovations to the old house had written things all over the fence, including the sentence, Ross is not cool, which he supposed he should appreciate the humour of. He couldn't, though, not even after he's seeing his therapist's face and realising that he was supposed to get the humour. <laughs> While he was thinking about how much he hated his therapist, a woman who'd once admitted to enjoying two and a half men, he heard the unmistakable sound of glass breaking. Looking up, he realised it was a window in his own house and that there were two behooded youths in his yard throwing rocks. Hey! He called, and in the stress of the moment, his voice broke. A trademark Ross Geller move. A voice he had manufactured to be dorky and sweet. But in this instance, it broke naturally, and the two youths turned around. Fuck, it's Ross! One of them muttered. The other laughed a snort of contempt from under his hood. <laughs> David Schwimmer searched for it and found himself breaking those young bodies. Shattering their skulls and using parts of their bodies to hit other parts. He was possessed with the strength of two men, Schwimmer and Geller. <laughs> um, Ross is a badass, he squeaked, and somewhere in his head he heard the studio audience applaud. <laughs> Later that week he found himself strolling the bad end of the city, past incredulous looking sex workers, and past out drunks, and into the garbage strewn alleys. He was wearing sneakers, a grey sweater and with an orange stripe down the arms and a pair of big baggy jeans. The costume of mid-90s Ross Geller. Eventually, he found that he was searching for three men mugging a sad-faced older man. Did you know I'm an archaeologist? He asked in his cracked voice. What the fuck? replied one of the muggers before Ross Geller's shovel smashed his head in. Looks like you can dig it. Ross quit before murdering the other muggers. Sobbing, the old man grabbed pitifully at Ross's enormous jeans. Who are you? Some kind of superhero? No, answered Ross slash David. I'm Ross Geller from the television show Friends. Thank you, Ross Geller man. I'll never forget you. None of you have cable TV? Probably not. <laughs> Using his million of dollars earned from top-ranking network TV, Ross Gellerman bought a jetpack and gadgets and hired Chandler, the amazing Chandler, to be his sidekick. Mostly all the amazing Chandler did was detox in Ross Gellerman basement and remind Ross Gellerman that he had a real name. Still, Ross felt he'd been successful in using his celebrity status to get them into casinos and exclusive clubs. He was pleased he'd taken his fight to clean up the street into mob territory. Why are you doing this? One mob boss had asked. Ross Gellerman had answered, Um, why wouldn't I be doing this? Before throwing him off a building. But there was still something missing, and he asked the amazing Chandler man uh, about it one evening as they flew around New York in a helicopter. Could you be any thicker? The amazing Chandler replied. <laughs> That was good. That, that really sounded like Chandler. You can have a treat now. 
<laughs> anyway, what do you mean? Roscoe Man has everything you could want. A, a vendetta against crime, a T-Rex skeleton in his bedroom. You don't have the one thing Ross really needs. Rachel. It was relatively easy to break into Jennifer Aniston's mansion. <laughs> relatively easier for Gos Ross Gellerman, that is. After he finally killed the last guard, he found her in her bedroom looking terrified. <laughs> what are you doing, David? She screamed. He laughed at her. Classic Rachel, you always overreact. <laughs> Ross Gellerman was covered in blood and viscera, which was unattractive. So when he went in for a classic Ross and Rachel kiss, she brained him with a lamp. Story didn't receive a huge amount of attention in the news because earlier that day, Courtney Cox, Arquette, had shot the President of the United States because she was an assassin for hire. She was quoted on the front page of the major newspaper saying, This is Monica's story. Hello? <laughs> We hope you enjoyed this podcast from www.aussiewriters.com.au and if you are a reader or a writer, then hop on over to our website and subscribe. Subscribe.